You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. What I remember, and I'm sure Jim McKay would remember too, we, we both had, uh, uh, <clears throat> I had my daughter and he had his son. And the first thing I remember was being awakened at our hotel and, and then and there terrorists have attacked the Olympic Village. And my first immediate thought was, you know, I never, what's a terrorist? That was the first time I ever heard the word, a terrorist. I knew it was bad. And then pretty soon the information started coming in about, you know, they had holding the, the Israeli wrestling team hostage and we should all come to the, uh, the studio and they would, and, and sirens were everywhere and we were, and oh, it wasn't Jim, Bill, uh, Bill uh, Oh gosh, Bill Russell and I were doing basketball. We did that Soviet game. As a matter of fact, it's so controversial. And he said that uh, I, I woke him up and said we got to go to the uh, studio. So we went over. But the first thing I wanted to do is make sure that I got my daughter. Jim would get his daughter. I think daughter it might have been Sean out of Munich. And. We made the arrangements to do that. We made sure they had security, and we all went over to the to the village. And like everyone else, we sat there and watched that whole terrible thing unhappen. I mean, unfold the uh, uh, you know the mass uh, terrorists coming out, walking around through machine guns. They were two or three hundred yards from. You know, they'd walk outside, and you could see them. And it was a it was it was like an unreal happening. And how could this be happening? And then I, you knew, just knew it was going to come to, uh, you know, a conclusion, and everything would be all right. We'd go back to wrestling. We'd go back to this. We'd go back to that. And of course, what happened? We never went back to anything ever again in this world. And that was our first touch of what terrorism is really about. We're coming to you live from ABC headquarters in Munich, West Germany. I'm sitting right now with a man who's just come into the studio. His name is Tuvia Sokolsky. He is on the extreme left here. The gentleman in the middle is Nassim Kavidi, translator for the Israeli team. Mr. Sokolsky does not speak English. He is the coach of the weightlifters and came out of that room today. Would you ask him just to tell us briefly what happened today? To be on Karahaboker. At about 4.30 uh, this morning, I heard, I was uh, fast asleep when I woke up and heard uh, our um, international uh, wrestling uh, referee, Joseph Gottfreund, uh, shouting, boys, uh, run out, run away. Uh, I saw a very strange uh, picture. I saw Joseph Gottfreund holding the door and trying to keep it shut, and some people from the outside pushing it open. Uh, it was about half open, he's a very hefty fellow, and he held them and kept shouting to us to, to escape. Did Mr. Sikowski suspect what this was? Yes, instinctively, I knew.
Gentlemen, I had the opportunity this morning before I left San Clemente to call Prime Minister Mayer on the phone. Uh, I reached her just before we left, talked to her about seven or eight minutes. Uh, I expressed sympathy on behalf of all of the American people for the victims of this murderous act that has occurred at the Olympic Village in Munich. Uh, I also told her that uh, she could expect total cooperation from the government of the United States in any way that would be helpful in obtaining the release of the hostages. We are dealing here with international outlaws of the worst sort who will stoop to uh, anything in order to accomplish their goals uh, and who are totally unpredictable. Under the circumstances, I said to the Prime Minister that I thought that looking to the future, uh, we had to anticipate that Israeli citizens traveling abroad would be subjected to such activities in the future. Naturally, we cannot do anything with regard to uh, what happens in other countries. That's their responsibility primarily, except to indicate our interest from a diplomatic standpoint. But I said that in the United States that we would try to do everything that we could with regard to groups of Israeli citizens traveling in the United States to see that where there's any, any information at all with regard to a possible attempt of this sort, that adequate uh, security measures are taken. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and this is a special edition. And we're going to take a look at really a, a moment in history that is sort of a standalone from the, the foundation of peace theme that we're on and, and looking at 1972 with the Nixon administration. And because one of the things that I've tried to do with this entire series on Richard Nixon is give you a sense of so many things that are happening at one time. Uh, that he's having to deal with, whether it's a domestic policy or deal, bringing the Vietnam War to an end or opening China and dealing with the Russians. But the Middle East is another area, and this is going to be the moment that terrorism really enters our lives um, on, on, a, on a worldwide scale, front and center, when the Israeli team is taken hostage and then killed um, in when the Germans attempted really something they were not qualified to do uh, to try to, to, to take the get, the get the hostages back uh, and it led to everybody dying uh, and it changes the world, it's just really that moment, as Frank Gifford will say that the world changed with, this, with, with terrorism also it really gives you a window into the Middle East where as, as this Cold War you know, it's, it's at its height here, and, and but terrorism is is going to be underneath it all in the Middle East, and you're going to see where Nixon worked so hard to get the Russians, uh, the, the Soviet influence out of the Middle East, but this Palestinian question is you know going to be introduced, and you're going to see terrorism become a bigger theme uh, the rest of this decade, and in, in really up until today, um, and, and Nixon's going to be trying to deal with it. And, and that's what begins here. He's not as big a player in this situation, uh, but I just want to give you a feeling for what's happening because next year in our series when we get to the Watergate uh, and beyond in, that, in those final two years of his term, some major moments are going to happen in October of 1973 between the United States and the Soviet Union because of the Arab invasion of Israel during the Yom Kippur War in a moment when Richard Nixon himself stands up and saves the nation of Israel. And you're going to see why, if you've ever wondered why the Israelis 
are always feeling under siege. You, you get a dose of it in these two years, in 72, with what happened in Germany and what will happen during the Yom Kippur War of, you know, why we have to work so diligently and hand-in-hand hand with the Israelis to make sure that they're safe. They are our, I heard it said one time, our super carrier in the Middle East. They are our big ally there, um, there and, and we have to keep them strong because, as Benjamin Netanyahu is famous for saying, if the Israelis, if the, if the Arabs laid down their weapons, there would be peace. If the Israelis laid down their weapons, there would be no Israel. And so you're getting a dose of, of this um, over, over these two incidences or two major moments in history in 1972, September 5th, at Munich, at the Munich Olympic Games. And then October 6th, in 1973, through uh, the end, toward the end of the month of October, when the Yom Kippur War happens, and Richard Nixon okays the airlift that will save Israel. So with that, we're going to go look at the Munich Olympic Games, and and we've got a little documentary, it's a mini documentary, about three minutes, uh, on what happened at Munich. And then you're going to hear from Jim McKay, who was a sportscaster for the ABC News, and he really commentated. Uh, on the network broadcast, uh, what was happening, and he brought in Peter Jennings, who was who was the uh, anchorman later on on ABC News. But you'll hear from Peter Jennings, and he's going to tell you, or from Jim McKay, and he's going to tell you uh, the story of, of what happened. Uh, and we're going to hear from Frank Gifford again, and we're going to hear an ESPN little mini take that's going to let you hear some of Jim McKay's uh, broadcast and and his coverage of the event of Munich, 1972. They started as joyous games. Germany had encouraged a friendly atmosphere from the beginning. On the 10th day, though, the colorful celebration was interrupted by a terror attack. 5th of September, 1972, 4 a.m. The Olympic Village was resting in darkness. Eight men were climbing over a fence. Wearing training suits, they seemed to be athletes coming back from a night on the town. But they were actually Palestinian terrorists. Their aim was to reach the accommodation of the Israeli team. As soon as they experienced resistance, they opened fire. Two trainers died right away, and another nine were taken as hostages. Anki Spitzer, wife of the fencing coach, some days after the massacre. It was a total chaos. Um, food... Uh, clothes, blood, uh, half of the wall came, fell back into the room because of the shots on a very short distance. Um, and I, I, I cannot really forget the blood. It was all over the place. They wanted to draw attention to the fate of Palestinians with this bloody massacre. The attackers in the Connolly Street of Munich were demanding the release and safe passage of their 200 imprisoned fellows. With the Munich Games, Germany wanted to erase memories of the dark ghosts of the Olympic Games in Berlin, 1936. It was a nice try to show Germany from another side. The Games were very nice, happy, and cloudless, and everything was all right until that moment. Israel had sent 26 athletes to Munich. Palestine did not get permission to participate. The Games had their own stars. Olga Corbett, the Soviet gymnast, 
and Mark Spitz, the American swimmer, awe half a billion people in front of the televisions. Perfect games. Until the 5th of September. The first ultimatum of the terrorists ran out at 9 a.m. Luckily, they did not keep their promise since they should have shot other hostages. It was a very touchy situation since it was about Jewish people. Having Jewish victims of a massacre on German ground again was terrible and gave a very miserable aspect to the games. The Minister of Internal Affairs traveled to Munich. Hans-Dietrich Genscher and the Crisis Committee negotiated with the terrorists. We were surrounded by three or four terrorists carrying machine guns, and they held us in check. The hostages were totally frightened and depressed. Chancellor Willy Brandt in Bonn tried to reason with the Israeli government, but could not manage. Israel refused to negotiate with the terrorists. There was no solution. The Israeli government refused every proposal to negotiate and to realize a potential exchange. The terrorists extended their ultimatum five times, but there was no negotiation. German police started its action without any defense or preparation. We were city police and we weren't prepared for situations like this, not even trained. Hans-Dietrich Genscher and the crisis committee members were offering themselves in exchange for the hostages. The aggressive rescue action seemed to be hopeless. The terrorists did not accept the offer. Then they came up with a surprising demand. They wanted to fly to Cairo. The hostages agreed as well. Genscher wanted to make sure of this personally. One of the hostages appeared in the window of the Israeli accommodation and wanted to talk to Genscher. It was André Spitzer. He asked André, how are you and is everything okay? And he said, well, I'm fine. I just um, want my wife to know that she should not worry about me because... We will see each other again soon in Israel and just tell her that I love her. That, 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 that was the message. The negotiating committee left the Olympic Village at 5 p.m. The federal government fulfilled the conditions of the attackers. 10 p.m., two helicopters were waiting for the assassins and the hostages. The destination was to be the airport of Furstenfeldbruck. There was to be a Lufthansa flight, according to the official announcement. But that flight would never depart. Police units were arriving to Furstenfeldbruck from every part of the territory. The airport and the building were tightly sealed off. Two helicopters with the terrorists and their hostages emerged from the dark night. As soon as they got off the plane, police sharpshooters were ready. A bit later, the command was given to fire. All these decisions had to be made in a split second. Five sharpshooters on top of the airport against eight terrorists. Several minutes of shooting could be heard from afar. 
There was a terrible bang. Also, the terrorists were shooting on the building. I pulled the minister under the table, and we lay under it for a while. Chaos. There's nobody to make decisions. I would have expected to go out immediately, attack the helicopters and try to rescue the hostages, and then deal with the terrorists. But nothing at all happened the whole time. The journalists waiting there were told that all hostages had been rescued. In my parents' house, pandemonium broke loose because everybody started to call my father took a big bottle of champagne and wanted to open it and celebrate. And I said, Father, I, I cannot be happy yet because I don't believe it. And he said, but Anki, it was on official television. Terrible mistake. In Furstenfeldbruck, gunfire continues. One of the terrorists pulled the pin on a hand grenade. The balance of the bloodshed of the night, all nine hostages, one policeman and five terrorists were killed. Many people say that Vinchen entered 500 million people to the house and say, who are they? They are Palestinians. The first time they hear about Palestine. I think it's right. Slavin Mark, Romano Yosef, Shapira Mitsu. Burial service in the Olympic Stadium at the place of the joyous games. The organizing committee had made its decision. The games must go on. The team of Israel flew back the same day. Eleven of the 26-member delegation who had come to Munich were dead. The survivors accompanied the coffins. The Olympic Games went on, though the atmosphere had been ruined. Celebration over. once again picked me out to do that and uh, uh, I was not the host of those games Chris was the Chris Schenke was the host of the games of our, of our nightly three-hour show but uh, suddenly one morning again it was my one day off during the games Margaret and I were going to go up in the mountains and get lunch someplace in the Alps but at a very early hour the phone rang and uh, Jeff Mason who was Rune's right hand man at those games uh, said uh Terrorists have invaded the Israeli team headquarters, Jim. They've been killed one man already. They're threatening to kill one every hour. Rune wants you to stand by. We'll be going on the air. He wants you to host the show. So uh, uh, he said, I'll call you back. So I did what I've been doing. I went down to the pool in the hotel and uh, took a sauna and had, had a swim. I've been doing that every morning. And uh, again, a phone call. He said, Jim, get on your horse and get out of here. We're going on the air in 45 minutes. Uh, Gives, gives you a pretty good idea of how much you could concentrate on something to the exclusion of everything else. That it wasn't until I came back to my hotel room almost a day later, at 4 o'clock in the morning, and got undressed that I realized I still had a damp bathing suit on, you know, under my regular, under my regular clothes. But when I got out there, uh, things were already on, well underway. Uh, Jeff Mason, I think, and uh, Marvin Bader, who was our... Uh, vice president in charge of Olympic organizing. Uh, they'd been out there early and they got the technicians to push one camera out of the studio and up on a little knoll there. They could see down uh, to 31 Connolly Strasse where the hostages were being held. That was the only camera for 16 hours. That was the only camera we had. There was another one on a tower 
Uh, and we could take that shot, but only when the Munich police said we could take it. They were controlling it. They were afraid, you know, that uh, uh, somehow it would get on German television and, the, and that the terrorists could see it in the headquarters, you know, to see what was going on. But we had the one camera, 16 hours, live television. And uh, I remember during the first hour, it occurred to me that there was a young guy in there named David Berger from Shaker Heights, Ohio, son of a doctor out there. And uh, he was an American, but he had emigrated to Israel and was a member of the Israeli team. He was a weightlifter. And I thought, I know he was, his name was on the list. He's in that room. And I thought, I'm going to be the guy to tell that family in Shaker Heights, Ohio, whether their son and brother is alive or dead. And that was, that was on my mind all day long, I remember. And of course, eventually I had to tell the worst possible news because they were all killed at the airport that night. And being a newspaper reporter, uh, and then going into sports, I thought that if you're a guy who reads all the sections of the newspaper, not just the sports section, reporting is reporting. It's basically the same thing, telling the facts of what have happened here and is, and is happening here, and also giving something of the flavor of what it feels like to be here uh, at this point. So the reporting aspect uh, didn't bother me. Uh, the idea of telling these people that all these men were dead, of course it did. It was one of the most terrible moments of my life, and I think everybody who has seen it I've been amazed since, since I wrote my book, you know, it came out last May. How many people, when I'm at autograph signing sessions, say, oh, I'll never forget the Munich tragedy. And I'll look at that guy and I'll say, well, how old were you? And so many of them said, eight years old, you know, 10 years old. One guy said, seven years. I said, you don't remember. He said, yes, I do. I remember this guy in the mask, you know, or I knew something terrible was happening. And... uh uh, kids and adults alike, they remember it to this day more vividly than so many other uh, moments in our history. Maybe part of the reason was that we weren't used to terrorism at that time. This was something that just came out of the blue. Also, the fact that it was at the scene of the Holy of Holies of sport, the Olympic Games, and the Olympic Village itself. Uh, but it did make that impact. I, I'll guarantee you four or five times a month at least Somebody comes up to me in an airport or a supermarket or wherever I may be. And I think that when I talk about last week's show and they say, I'll never forget Munich and tell me about this and that. We really played it uh, minute by minute. Uh, what we had was, was, was I was in the studio. Rune was producing in the control room. Uh, and inside the Olympic Village, we had Peter Jennings, who was then the, the Middle Eastern correspondent for ABC News. He had been, as a very young guy, he was the host of the news. Many people forget that or didn't know it. But then he was a Middle East correspondent a good, good many years before he came back and became a host again of World News Tonight. But he had come to Munich at the suggestion of Rune. Rune called him up in the Middle East and said, Peter, how would you like a little vacation from the tension of the Middle East? <laughs> come to Munich and work with us and do the sidebar news type stories around town. He said, I thought that'd be great. And the next thing you know, Peter was in the headquarters of the Italian Olympic team, no more than about 75 yards from the apartments where the Israelis were being held. And uh, all he had was a telephone. And one of our technicians, Billy Blumel, figured out a way to pipe the telephone into our outgoing signal and thereby, you know, uh, out to every, everywhere in the United States. At the same time, uh, uh, we had one of our young producers who uh, sneaked into the village 
wearing an athlete's uniform, an American athlete's uniform that he had borrowed from somebody, and he had an athlete's bag, a boxer's bag, and in that he actually had a 16-millimeter camera. He was going to get film coverage that we could use in another way later on, you know. So he said, I knew this one building was exactly uh, facing the, the building where they were held. I had a little map of the village. So he said, I went in there, and I got in the elevator, and I pushed two. I said, Later, I said, I said, why'd you push two? He said, I don't know. I had to push something. And he said, I pushed two. I guess maybe I thought I'd get a view. And I got off on two, started walking down past all these rooms. And I heard water running in a room. And I thought maybe somebody's in there. And I went in. Nobody was. Somebody left the water running. And I turned it off. So I walked on this little balcony. And straight across, I was looking into the eyes of this guy with, with the white hat. The lookout for, for the terrorists. And he said, we looked at each other. And literally, I think, Linked, as you read in the, in the novels, we both quickly went back inside. Well, he was there most of the day, as Peter Jennings was. All he had was a walkie-talkie, and we, we couldn't figure out how to put that on the air. So he would talk back and forth to Peter Jennings, and Jennings would hold the phone up to the walkie-talkie, and it would throw the phone then back to the headquarters and out over the air. Except that uh, John didn't know this. And at one point, when we were in the commercial, uh, Peter said, uh, hey, he said, you know, he said, you're calling them Arabs. He said, don't call them Arabs. They don't like that. They're, they're Arabs. You know, he says, you're on the air. He said, I am? He said, thanks a lot for telling me, Peter. That's, that's, the, that's the way that the thing was constructed. Uh, Howard Cosell was with the film crew. He was down in the village uh, elsewhere with the film crew, and they, they got some good interviews and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but that was, the, that was the basic coverage all that, that long day. And um, you know there were deadline. There was deadline after deadline when they started going to kill people, and they didn't. And then there were you know there were the worst scenes to describe, like when all the policemen in athlete uniforms started scrambling along the rooftops with their their guns and this sort of thing, and they were going to try to sneak in here. And it was always something to describe and a reaction from around the world. And then at one point uh, in the night. They flew them off to the airport, to a military airport, by helicopters. I remember our daughter Mary was standing at the fence. Uh, from our studio to the fence of the village was 25 yards. I paced it off the next year when I came back. And from the fence to the headquarters where they were being held was another 75 yards. So a great crowd, a couple thousand people had gathered here at this fence. And Looking back, it was not without danger, but... Our daughter's never been afraid of danger. So she was in that crowd, and she told me later, she said, Dad, when the helicopters went over with the little red lights blinking on and off, they were so close, you almost felt you could touch them. And nobody could do anything. You know, nobody in the world. And that was a touching moment. Minister of the Interior got up there, and instead of saying what had happened at the airport, he started way back at the beginning, the morning, that early morning before, you know, and hour by hour. Everybody knew these things, and reporters started shouting, what happened at the hostages? What happened at the airport? And he just kept going. And Marvin said, this guy's Otto Kench was his name. He said, Otto, you got to tell me. They were eyeball to eyeball. He said, Marvin, I can't. He said, you got to tell me as a friend. He said, Marvin, they're all dead. And Marvin said, who? Who? He said, the hostages. And, of course, then he told Rune by uh, his walkie-talkie. And Rune told me in my ear. And that was a moment when I had a turn to the camera and, you know, say they're all gone. So it, it was it was someday. But as maybe you can notice, it kind of uh, tears me up a little bit even now.
Well, I think over the course of that day, uh, as, as I recall some of it, you, you would share with the, the viewing audience who these athletes were, who the hostages were. And, and oh, yeah. You got to know their biographies. and We had a couple by, who had escaped from the room who were on live with us and that sort of thing. By the but end we, of the day, did you feel a, a strong sense of connection with those athletes? Because, you know, particularly with this, with this right. guy from the United States, uh, Berger, David Berger, because uh, we had had him on. I think we had interviewed him, and you know, we were familiar with him uh, before then. But you know, some of them had been uh, 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 in the Holocaust. Uh, some of them come from Russia. They came from, from all over the world, of course, as, as the state of Israel uh, was formed. Uh, we had one man into the studio named Tuvia Sokolsky, I remember. And I said, well, your colleagues are still being held. But, you know, what do you think? If you were in the room right now and you could make the, the decision, what would you do? You know, would you give in or what? And he said, well, he said, I have always said that we will never give in to these people who only fight us when they have guns and we do not. But all I feel in my heart right now is, so I want my comrades to live, you know. Was, and that was that was the way everybody felt. But uh, in the end, they I think the Germans did the right thing. They tried to do the right thing. Uh, you know, terrorist control was not a, a science at that point as it is today. It was it was pretty much brand new, and uh, they had sent snipers to the airport. They were all in place and ready to go. And when the helicopter came and landed, the idea was that. Uh, they would let two of the terrorists go to the 727 airplane they had ordered up, you know, to take them someplace, an undisclosed res uh, designation. But let two of them go over to make sure this airplane was not a trap or something like that. And then on the way back, they would shoot them. And on the way back, they did shoot them. And they, they, one of them they got. The other one they didn't. He threw a hand grenade into the helicopter. That's when all the guys were killed. What I said was, I said, when I was a kid, my father always told me that our... Greatest hopes and our worst fears are seldom realized. Tonight, our worst fears have been realized. I said uh, two were killed, and I think I said this morning, and then I said yesterday morning, uh, in their rooms, the others were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. That was it. Well, I remember somebody said, I don't know who it was, we were all distracted at that time, and I <laughs> I had just, shortly before I got the news, I'd just gone through the whole 24-hour period or 16-hour period that had occurred. And uh, somebody then said, well, Jim, how about uh, wrapping up the whole thing for us? And I thought, that's what I just said, you know, but I did it again. But I, we were all just so down, we didn't know where we were. And uh, stayed on the air until Rune said, let's, let's wrap it up. And then went back to the hotel room there had been this false report, which we did not put on the air, but which German television did, that all the hostages had been saved and all the terrorists killed. And so many people, most people in Munich that, that thought that was the case. Go back to the room. Margaret was asleep. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. And I, she said, oh, you're back. Thank God. And she said, well, at least they were all saved. I said, no, they're all dead. That was another moment. And uh, I got two hours sleep because we had to go back because they were going to have a memorial service uh, at the stadium. It was supposed to be the first day of the decathlon competition. Instead, it was going to be a memorial service. And as I was going through our ABC headquarters, uh, I, I saw our mailboxes over there. We each had one. There was a little yellow slip coming out of mine. And that's when 
somehow the impact of how this had registered back home came to me. It said, you, Jim, you were a credit to your network, to your medium, and to yourself, and was signed Walter Cronkite. Whoops. How about that? Good afternoon. I'm Jim McKay speaking to you live at this moment from ABC headquarters just outside the Olympic Village in Munich, West Germany. The peace of what is what have been called the Serene Olympics was shattered just before dawn this morning about five o'clock when Arab terrorists armed with submachine guns, faces blackened, a couple of them disguised as guards or as uh, trash men in the Olympic Village, climbed the fence, went to the headquarters of the Israeli team and immediately killed one man, Moshe Weinberg, a coach, two shots in the head, one in the stomach. As much of the world watched and listened, McKay drew deep on his repertorial background. I asked Rohn, why did you pick me to, to be the anchor of our coverage on the day of the tragedy in Munich? Uh, because actually, my good friend Chris Schenkel was our host of our three-hour nightly show. But with all due respect to Chris, I just thought that this was going to require the same skills that had made Jim what he was on Wide World of Sports. And you didn't know what might happen, but you knew that it was going to be a dramatic human story with journalistic elements to it. This is building number 31. And we're moving in now on the windows behind which, at this moment, eight or nine terrified living human beings are being held prisoner. For a nation that would not know cable television and 24-hour news coverage for more than a decade, McKay became the central voice of the crisis. Hour by hour, minute by minute, the man who'd been best known for colorful offbeat sports related the details of the kidnapping. We are told that there are men with guns beginning to train those guns on the rooms where the two heads were sticking out a moment ago of the Arab guerrilla lookouts. I don't... I'm not sure these men have guns or, or cameras. That, that's a gun, all right. One man with binoculars, another with a gun. Whether they have a line of fire, whether they'll have to sneak up to the corner. This is happening now, if you can possibly believe that, at the games of the 20th Olympiad. The German snipers eventually retreated, and the scene moved to a rarely used airstrip outside Munich. In the early hours of the morning local time, McKay was still on the air when the fateful rescue attempt was launched. The latest word we get from the airport is that, quote, all hell is broken loose out there, that there is still shooting going on, that there is a report of a burning helicopter. I do get emotionally attached uh, to the things that I feel. My problem was not to let, let much out, but to hold the rest of it back in, because I was supposed to be a, you know, a professional. And the worst words I ever heard in my ear when Kozoti said, Jim, we've finally gotten clearance to put it on the air. It's really true. I remember Jim sitting there when he got word after they had taken the hostages to the airport, loaded the airport, and, uh, and then the... Uh, Germans attacked the plane, and I remember they, I knew right away from just looking at him. And Rune was talking to him from the control booth. He was directing and producing it for the world. He had refused to give it up. He, he wouldn't give it back to ABC News. They wanted to take it from him. He had he had the good sense to call in Peter Jennings, who had uh, 
had been living in the Middle East as a correspondent, news correspondent. So he knew something about what this group was all about. And so between Jim McKay and uh, Peter Jennings and Rune Arledge, uh, controlling it from the booth, producing, directing, uh, they, the world was getting information as to what was happening that they would have never got had it not been that for that trio. And I was standing behind the room when they were producing it. But I knew when I saw in Rune whispering to Jim that, that it was over. And it, it was when he said, Jim looked in the microphone and said, they're dead. They're all gone. They're gone. And the world has never been the same. You know, when I was a kid, my father used to say, our greatest hopes and our worst fears are mm -hmm. seldom realized. Our worst fears have been realized tonight. They've now said that there were 11 hostages. Two were killed in their rooms this morning, yesterday morning. Nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now. <laughs>